Our sermon today is taken from Exodus 13, chapter 13, verse 17 until 14, verse 31. This is the word of God. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, least the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Sukkoth and encamped at Etham, on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in the pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, and they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from them before the people. The Lord, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Piharoth, between Migdol and the sea. In front of Baal-Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land, and the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And he did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people. And they said, What is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Piharioth in front of Baal-Sephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in, in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we had said to you in Egypt? Uh, leave us alone, that we may serve in it, the Egyptians." For it would have been better for us to serve in the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the hosts of Israel, moved and went behind him. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the hosts of Egypt and the hosts of Israel. 
and there was the cloud of the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of the fire of cloud looked down on the Egyptians' forces and threw the Egyptians' forces into panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course. When the morning appeared, and as the Egyptians fled in, into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and horsemen of all the hosts of the Pharaoh and that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. Thus the Lord saved the Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Thus says the Lord. Let me pray one more time before we continue our sermon. Father, uh, that was that was a long passage. There's a lot packed in there. And as we try and um, learn what it is you've said, I pray that you speak loudly and show us Jesus. In your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so friends, we're still continuing in the series uh, through the life of Moses, where we go through Moses' life through the book of Exodus. And we're done now with the plagues. Last week we did plague number 10, which was the last one here in Exodus chapter 12. And now... We're going to skip around a bit, okay, because it may be too much to cover all of Exodus. So we're just going to cover the major points of Moses' life from here on out. And the next one after the plagues would be, yes, the crossing of the Red Sea, right? Uh, now, there's way too many things in this passage. We can't cover it all, but I'll try my best to get to, get to the main point, okay? Before I begin, though, I want to quickly share why I think this passage is hard to preach on. There are many reasons, but at least there's two, I think. One, because it's suspicious, and two, it's impractical. Okay, what I mean, first, it's suspicious. You might have noticed, but this passage is usually the passage that gets questioned the most, that people go to the most when people are questioning about the Bible, right? People would come and say, you know, how can the Bible be true? Look at what it's talking about. There are seas splitting. This is just weird. Um, I don't know if I can believe in the Bible. And that's a valid question. And I think the church should be a safe place where questions, hard questions like that are asked. Let me just briefly respond to that by making the question even harder. Why only question the splitting of this sea when actually God has already split a sea before this? Do you remember when? In Genesis chapter 1. Do you remember that? When? Well, what did God do there? 
He said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. Genesis chapter 1, 9, what did God do there? He split a sea so that the dry land beneath might appear. That's exactly what happened in Exodus 14. So what I'm, what I'm trying to get at is what you're questioning may not actually be about Exodus chapter 14, but it's about Genesis chapter 1. You see, if you don't believe in the God of Genesis chapter 1, if you don't believe that there exists a God who is free and able to work above, without, against natural law, a God who in fact created natural law itself, if you don't believe that, then yeah, of course you're not going to believe the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 14. That makes total sense. But if you believe in the God of Genesis chapter 1, that there is a God that exists, who is free and able to work above, without, and against natural law, then you have no logical problem with Exodus chapter 14. You see, your question isn't actually about Exodus 14. It's a bigger one. It's about the existence of a God in Genesis 1, which is a whole other conversation, which I can't get to now. But the second reason why I think this passage is hard to grasp is because it's impractical. Now, why do you think, by the way, most people have a hard time believing in the God of Genesis chapter 1? who is completely free to work above without against natural law, why, why do people have a hard time believing in him? It's not actually, I think, a lack of evidence. I think most felt is because an abundance of seemingly unnecessary evil. I think that's why most people have doubts. If there exists a being which has such abilities that can move oceans, then why would he make my life harder and more difficult than it needs to be? Right? If Genesis 1 is true, that there was, was a time when all was well, when there was no suffering, when everything was peaceful and ordered. If that's true, then why would a God who is so powerful allow things to get this bad in this world? And perhaps even in my own life, we may ask. Well, this passage tells us why. It tells us why God doesn't always take the most efficient and practical road to the finish line. It tells us why he allows the journey to get so messy sometimes. Well, let's, let's get to it. Three things I want to point out. One, God making the journey harder. Two, God making a way. And three, God truly known. God making the journey harder. God making a way. God truly known. First one. First point. God making the journey harder. Let's, let's tackle in this first point the first chunk of our passage. Chapter 13, verse 17 to chapter 14, verse 9. We're just going to go through it uh, uh, in, in its logical flow. Okay, So that's the first two paragraphs you see in your printouts. See the first two paragraphs? That's what we're going to talk about first. Okay, What do we see here? Well, we see God created a problem. And you're like, hold on. You mean we see God solving a problem? No. We see God creating a problem. Look at chapter 13, verse 17 to 22. You know how in movies, and there's a plot line, and when a storyline progresses, there's different sections of the plot, right? First, there's the introduction, okay? That's when all is well, everything is peaceful, people were doing their routines, people were eating breakfast, brushing their teeth, going to work, going to school, the aliens have not invaded yet, Right? And then after the introduction, what happens? There's, a, there's an inciting incident. The aliens invade, right? Or the enemy attacks, or the couple gets into a big fight. And then after that, there's a rising action, right? Then there's a climax, and then there's a resolution. If you break down our story today, using that plot line progression, chapter 13, verses 17 to 22, the first five verses in your printouts, that's, that's our introduction. All was well. 
everything was peaceful. Everything was going according to plan. Where do we see that? Well, first, they were in the fastest route to Mount Sinai. Remember, Israel was freed out of Egypt, and God said, I'm going to take you to Mount Sinai to worship me, right? That's the whole point. Uh, and they were in the fastest route there. Look at, look at the route given in, in verse 17. God led them out of Egypt by way of the land of the Philistines around the Red Sea near the wilderness. Let me, point, um, let me draw a map for you right now with my hands on thin air. So you're going to have to picture it, okay, in, in your heads. We're going to refer back to this imaginary map over and over again throughout the sermon. So good luck. Okay. If you're looking at the map, this will be your west, right? This will be your east. This will be your north. This will be your south. Egypt is here on the west, okay? Up here is the wilderness that Israel was going toward, okay? And here is Mount Sinai. And there's a little inlet, inlet of a sea here called the Red Sea that separates Egypt from Mount Sinai on the east. Israel, they were on the fastest route. They went kind of around. This is uh, the wilderness, Egypt, Red Sea. They went kind of around on top of the Red Sea towards the wilderness to the east, to Mount Sinai. You following still? Okay, so they were on the fastest route. All was well. Everything was good. The, the journey was going as planned. Not only, though, they were on the fastest route, they were very organized. Look at the end of verse 18. It says, Egypt left, uh, they left, Israel left Egypt equipped for battle. That's not the greatest translation, okay? The literal meaning there is that they left Egypt in a military-like fashion. If you imagine uh, infantry walking, what's that like? That's organized, right? There are sections to it. And Israel left, not only having, the, they're on the fastest route there, but everything was sectioned out. Everything was organized. All was well. Everything was peaceful. And on top of that, verse 19 says, Moses took Joseph's bones. Well, that's kind of, you know, weird. What's that about? Well, if you remember, all the way back in Genesis, hundreds of years before this event ever happened, Remember, God told Jacob that one day your people, your descendants, Israel, they're going to be enslaved by Egypt, but I will one day free them. So this here is, 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 is them carrying Jacob's bones, is saying that I believe and I remember this promise that God has for me. All was well. Everything was, not only were they on the fastest route to Mount Sinai, they were well organized. They were holding on to God's promise symbolized by Jacob's bones, but it gets better. On top of all this, go to verse 21 and 22, God's personal presence was also protecting them and guiding them. Look at that. At night, God's presence is seen through a pillar of fire to light the way, and during daytime, that pillar of fire turned into a pillar of cloud, guiding them. I mean, talk about having it made. They're set. They're on the quickest route to the finish line. They're well organized. They're holding tightly to God's promises. And God's presence was there, you know, protecting them, guiding them. All was well. Everything was great until God just had to mess it up. He did. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. What did God do? Then, all of a sudden, in the midst of this peaceful, planned introduction, then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back. What? and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth between Migdal and the sea. You know what God's asking them to do here? Remember that imaginary map? Okay. Egypt, Mount Sinai, Red Sea. They were going this way. They were on the route. God said, no, no, I want you to turn back. 
and place yourself in this weird land between Egypt and the Red Sea. Now, can you imagine what they're asking? Why? Uh, I'm not going to do that. That makes no sense. That is not efficient at all. That makes life a lot harder. That makes this journey much longer. Why would, why would you do this? But let's give God the benefit of the doubt. Okay, maybe somehow this would make the trip easier, better, and quicker. Surely that's God's main concern for me in my life, right? To make the trip easier, better, and quicker. No, it's not. God says in verse 14, uh, chapter 14, verse 3, I'm not doing this to make the trip easier, better, and quicker. I'm doing this to entice Pharaoh to pursue you. Look at that. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. They're lost. Let's go get them. Now that just seems silly, God. Why, why would you want to do that? Why would you want to do what if, what if Pharaoh actually does pursue us? Oh, don't worry. God continues in verse 4. I'm going to make sure he does. Look at verse 4. This is bizarre. I'm going to harden his heart so that he will chase you down. <laughs> Isn't this odd? This is, right? Normally in a plot line, who disrupts the peace? The bad guy or the good guy? The bad guy disrupts the peace. But in this case, God, the hero of the story, the good guy, God disrupts the peace. You see how odd that is? And appreciate what's on the line here. These weren't just soldiers, you know, individually risking their lives. These were civilians mostly. These were mothers putting their children's life at risk. These were fathers putting their family's life at risk because what God is doing. Can you imagine the anger, the frustration, the confusion? Are you a sadist, God? Is my life one big joke to you? This is just cruel. Doesn't it seem cruel? You ever, you ever prayed for something for so long, you want it so bad, and God doesn't give it to you? And after a while, your heart just learns to accept it. You know, you say, okay, fine. Maybe that life is not for me. And that's a sad thing. It is, right? Because every time you picture what life would be if you had that unanswered prayer, it's as if you're looking into the good life that you're doomed never to find. That's a songwriter once put it. 430 years of slavery. You know, there's somewhere in there Israel's begun to accept it. Maybe freedom's just not for me. Maybe I just have to accept life as it is. We'll never be free. That in itself is painful. But you know what's worse? What's worse is when God finally gives you hints of that longing possibly being fulfilled. Is when God gives you sparks of hope that it might just happen, but then he takes it away again. You ever experienced that? And here you are, left with the same empty hand you begun with, but the fact that you tasted the possibility of it happening makes the emptiness now feel a little bit more hollow than it was before. Do you know what I mean? Mount Sinai was right there. They could taste it. After 430 years, freedom. And, and God, who seemingly wanted to give it to them, just took it away by placing them back in this weird spot between Egypt and the ocean. Why? That's the question, right? And I think that's the question that many of the readers of Genesis chapter 1 would be asking too. You read Genesis chapter 1? What was, what was going on? All was well. 
Everything was peaceful. God's presence was there. Everything was good. And God told Adam, you know, the blessing was right there, right? It was, it was so close. Adam, if you don't eat this fruit, I will give you my blessing. If you eat it, then it will be a curse. We had one job, to not eat that stinking fruit. And we ate it. We failed. Instead, Adam failed, and now the journey, as we experience every day, is unbelievably hard because sin has entered the world. It's more difficult, and it's longer. It's more painful. And we ask, why? We were, we were fine. Everything was fine. Why did you have to write the story this way? And you might say, yeah, but God didn't make Adam sin. You know, We might say, God didn't orchestrate all that. Um, sure, that's true. He didn't. Adam sinned. And it was his fault and his fault alone. But yet God orchestrated the event to where it still happened. Did God knew that was going to happen? Yes. Why did God still create Adam and Eve? Not only did he create Adam and Eve, he created the fruit that made it possible. (laughs) Yes, God didn't make Adam sin. That was Adam's own fault and volition. God is holy, holy, holy. He cannot do that. But it was God's sovereign hand that orchestrated the event to where now we are in the place we are now between a hard rock and a difficult place. What we see in Genesis 1, the disruption of a peaceful beginning, we see it here next to chapter 14. And in both instances, God orchestrated the journey to be longer and harder. But why? Well, let's, let's move on to our second point. He did it so that he can make a way. Second point, God making a way. Now, first... Look at how Israel responded to this now difficult life. It's really convicting, actually. It's like looking at a mirror for me. Um, once God made the journey harder, okay, they cried out to the Lord and complained. How? Oh, my. Here's a mirror for us, if there ever was one. The first thing they did, okay, when life gets hard, they complained. The first thing they did was they become sarcastic by asking a rhetorical question. They became sarcastic by asking a rhetorical question. Look at verse 11. Look at how they responded. Hey, God, just wondering, you know, is it because there is no graves in Egypt that you took us out here to die in the wilderness? Just curious. Is that why? Is that why you did it? (laughs) You see the sarcasm there? You ever been sarcastic to God by asking him a rhetorical question? Here's a popular one. Hey, God, just wondering, you happy now? You having fun up there, you know? Is it, is it is good? Everything good for you? <laughs> Here's a mirror of our own lives, if there ever was one. Second, they didn't question God's sovereignty, but they questioned God's love for them. Look at what they said next. What have you done to us? See, these people had just enough theology to not question God's sovereignty. They said, what have you done to us? They acknowledged God did it. They had enough theology to know that God was in control, but what they did doubt was God's commitment and love toward them. And is that not normally our second question? You know, first, you happy now? Second, why would you do this to me? Third, they twist the past to convince themselves that they never needed God. Look at what they said in verse 12. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Uh, When did they ever say that? (laughs) They were practically begging God to free them. That never happened. They... Out of anxiety, that's what anxiety does. It twists your memory of the past of what happened. Who's to blame? Fourth, they start thinking in black and white, which is a sign of panic. 
It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. You see the black and whiteness there? They're, in their minds, right now, there are only two options. One, either I go back to serve Egypt, or two, I die. That's it. That's all, I, that's all the only options I have. See, panic creates narrow-mindedness. And you ask yourself, you sure those are the only two options? Have you not just seen God do ten pretty crazy things to free you out of Egypt? Are you sure those are the only two options? But they're panicking. They can't see beyond that. That's only two options, right? And lastly, they long to go back to their old life without God. Their old life of sin. Notice it said out of the two options, which one do they prefer? It was better for us to serve the Egyptians. Much easier when I did things my way. None of these moral convictions, none of these old archaic Bible rules to like hold me back. See this? These people... They're me. This is what I do when things get bad. This is the questions I ask. You happy now? What have you done? Do you not love me? I was fine without your instructions. I should have just done it my way. Now, how would a holy God respond to such talk? Yes, angry, displeased. Look at Moses in verse 13 to 14. He was angry and displeased too. He said, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. That sounded like an encouragement. It wasn't. It was more of a rebuke. That last verse, verse there, and you have only to be silent, in the Hebrew, it's actually just two words. And it's more similar to be quiet. That's what it sounds more like. And if I can be honest, it actually sounds like, shut up. God will fight for you. Shut up. Have you not seen him do all that? What are you? Impatience, anger, right? And that's the proper response to such um, grumbling, such murmuring against God. But what's interesting is that Moses wasn't the only one that was angry here. Go down to verse 15. Let's continue on a passage. God was angry too, wasn't he? But here's what's interesting. Who was God angry at? At Moses. Verse 15, the Lord says to Moses, why do you cry to me? Can you imagine what Moses must have felt? Wait, hold on. You're blaming me? I wasn't crying to you. They were. Why are you angry at me? We'll get back to that later, but for now, let's stick with the text. God, without explaining himself, tells Moses in verse 16, stretch out your hands over the sea and divide it. Okay, now. We're finally here. Exodus chapter 14, verses 19 to 29, the actual splitting of the Red Sea, perhaps the most popular 10 verses in the whole Bible. Okay? You know how it's one thing to run by a park, and it's another thing to actually stop and take a walk through the park? You notice some details that you might have missed before. I suspect many of us have run by this passage and this story hundreds of times before, what I want to do is slow down and take a walk in it so that hopefully we can see more of the details that we might have missed in the past. Okay, here's the first thing I want to point out. A lot of people think that the split happened instantly. Like, you know, Moses raised his hands and it just, it just kind of split. It didn't. Look at verse 19. Then the angel of God and the pillar of cloud which is God's presence, move from being in front of Israel to behind them. So imagine, you know, remember the, the map again, Egypt, Red Sea, Israel, Sinai. God's presence was in front of them, and now they move, he, God's presence moved to behind them. 
right? Separating them from the Egyptians that were attacking them, protecting them, okay? Okay. But notice, um, when did the separation happen in verse 20, at the end of it? How long did it take? All night. It wasn't an instant. This, this process happened all night. Then in verse 21, as God was protecting them from the Egyptians, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind. How long? All night. So how long did Moses stretch out his hand to see the sea eventually split? All night. This was some free, crazy weight training. Okay? So why did God take all night? That's the question. Could have done it right away. Well, it's because he wanted to wait for the sun to rise. He wanted to humiliate Egypt's, remember Egypt's false god, Ra, the, the sun god, the false sun god that Egypt worshipped, Ra? He wanted to humiliate Ra again, one more time, one last time. He already did it in plague number nine. Remember when he covered the sun? He was rebuking, hey, you think this thing is a god? It's not a god. I'm God. And, and he covered the sun in plague number nine. He's humiliating Ra. Now he's going to do it again. He's not done, okay? In the Red Sea event, how? Okay, let's dive deeper into the details. The process of the sea splitting happened all night, but how did the sea split? Because a strong wind split it. Imagine you're pointing a very, 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 very strong hairdryer into the middle of a, of a, a puddle of water and kind of going like that. What happens to the water? It splits. Okay? That's what happened here. A strong wind came from which direction, by the way? The east. Came from the east in verse 21. God's very strong hairdryer came from the east, and it split the Red Sea. But it happened all night, so it was a gradual split. You see what I'm saying? It was a, it was a gradual split until eventually the water reached their shore. Okay. Um... Why did God do that all night? The strong wind came from the east, which is at the other end. It took all night to get to their end. When morning came, and finally the sea was split, and their eyes saw the sea split reaching to their side of the shore. Guess what else their eyes must have seen at that moment? Where does the sun rise? In the east. So picture this in your heads. Israel was facing the east. The Red Sea was in front of them. It was slowly splitting their direction because of a strong wind. And, and simultaneously, as the hope for salvation was coming closer and closer and closer to them, the sun started rising and rising and rising. And all of a sudden, in the morning, when the sun is in full view, as they were facing the east, the sea was completely split. And thus God, mocking the false god Ra, saying what? Look, Egypt. Look at him. He's right there. What can he do to stop me? Nothing. I'm God. The east, the south, the north, the west, the seas, the ocean, the wind, the sun, they all belong to me. I have no competition. Nothing can challenge me. That's the point. But even then, verse 24 Egypt had the audacity to still attack God's people and followed Israel down uh, this split sea. And what did God do? God attacked the wheels of their chariots. That's important. God attacked not their infantry, not their horsemen. God attacked the strongest weapon of their artillery. 
You imagine today it would be equivalent to God attacking their most advanced military jet. Why? Because, friends, God is not done flexing. Not the sun, not the ocean, not the sea, not the wind, not the day, not the night, not even the most advanced weaponry devised by man can challenge me. And God told Moses, verse 27 and 28, after Israel was on the other side, stretch your arms out again. The wind stopped. The sun was in full view as if a mockery. And the seawater closes down on Egypt's army. And without breaking a sweat, God left the whole world one simple message through this whole event. Don't mess with me. Don't mess with me. I am God. But also, he left a different message for his people through this event. To his people, God is telling them, don't ever doubt my love and commitment for you. Now, friends, could God have just said that to Israel? Could God just have said to his people, I love you, I'm committed to you, I'll never abandon you. We're good? Okay. Could God have done that? Sure. Of course he could. Verbally just have told them that. And they would have known it if he did. But they wouldn't have known it, known it. You know what I mean? This December 12th, uh, Tati, my wife, uh, it's my wife and our first uh, 10th year anniversary. Uh, yeah, it'll be 10 years, pretty crazy. Now, I remember, I wasn't asking for a clap, but sure, I'll take it. Um, I remember 10 years ago, you know, right before we got married, she would hug me and she would say, I love you. And I knew it back then. I knew she did. But last week, after quite a big fight, we made up and she hugged me and she said, I love you. And there was something in me last week that knew it much more deeply than I did 10 years ago. You know what I mean? Why? Because all the hardships that's happened between then and now. By now, she's endured me leaving the toilet seat up like 20,000 times. By now, she's endured me forgetting to wash the dishes 15,000 times. By now, she's endured me accidentally hitting her in the face while I sleep because I move a lot in my sleep, no joke, 30,000 times. I promise I was asleep. <laughs> and those are just the funny ones, right? Not the real fights. You know, they're fights, and then they're fights. You know what I mean? After countless struggles, after countless I'm sorry's, after countless hardships, the level in which I knew her love for me when she said it last week compared to 10 years ago is next level. I knew it, knew it. And the me now would look back to the me 10 years ago and say to that guy, you thought you knew. You thought you knew how much she loves you and how committed she is to you. Oh my, you have no idea. Now, could God have just taken the most efficient route? Could God have just said to Israel, I love you, I'm committed to you, I'll never leave you? Sure he could. And maybe Israel would have said, I know. But the Israel post the Red Sea event would look back at the Israel pre-Red Sea event and say, 
You thought you knew, but oh my, you had no idea. You have no idea how much God loves you. What if, friends, what if the point to this mess isn't efficiency of travel? Hmm? What if the point isn't getting to the finish line as quickly and as comfortably as we can? What if the point in life is to grow in our level of understanding of who God is? What if that's his goal for this mess? What if some kinds of knowing can't be known by just mere words? Something must have to be done for you to know it, know it. Which leads us to our third point, God truly known. Okay, so verse 30, let's continue our passage. Verse 30, God saved Israel, and now look at verse 31. Look at how God describes Israel there. Verse 31, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord. See, they knew God in a level, in a way they didn't earlier. How was Israel described earlier, by the way, in the first verse of our passage, in chapter 13, verse 17, the first verse? If you read there, it describes Israel as not being ready for war. They weren't yet confident in the Lord. They did not yet truly know, 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 you know, that God is going to deliver them through, okay? And now, now they trust the Lord, now they believe in the Lord. Now they fear the Lord much more. Why? God's presence was there before the Red Sea event. God's presence was objectively there, leading them to the pillar of fire and cloud. But somehow their faith and their knowledge and their fear of God subjectively grew after the Red Sea event because of everything that happened. Look at verse 31. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord. First, they feared the Lord. You know, I think... We are way too quick to say that God doesn't want us to fear. I don't think that's quite accurate. You see, in this passage, you see God wasn't so much interested in making their fears go away, but rather in establishing himself as the object of their fear. You see that? They feared God. Our issue isn't that we fear too much. Our issue is that we fear the wrong things. But it wasn't just pure fear like they feared Pharaoh. It was fear in what? Belief. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord. Not just in that he existed. No, they believed that before. There's a pillar of cloud and fire. It was with them this whole time. They never doubted his existence. What they doubted was his love and commitment for them. Remember the grumbling earlier? You see, Israel was transformed because of the Red Sea event. They were transformed from Pharaoh-fearing grumblers to becoming what? God-fearing believers. They know now, I mean, they really know now that God loves them and that God is committed to them. But how did their knowledge grow? It grew because first, God made their road harder, longer, and more difficult. And because God made a way out of that hard, long, difficult road. That's why their knowledge of God grew, of God's love for them. Now, we may think, hold on, I can see God, through this whole event, showing his power and his might and his control. But I don't really quite see his love. Because to be honest, none of this really cost God anything. Right? He didn't break a sweat. Is this really love when there's no cost or sacrifice involved? If it doesn't really cost him that much to help his people get to the finish line? 
Well, I want to revisit something weird that we briefly mentioned earlier, but, but ran by. Remember, while Israel was grumbling, God was mad at who? At Moses, not at Israel. That's interesting, isn't it? Why? Did Moses sin? No, Moses didn't sin. Moses did the right thing. He rebuked Israel. So then why was God angry at Moses rather than at Israel? Well, do you remember who Moses was? Moses was Israel's representative, right? He was the one that's going to redeem and deliver Israel out of Egypt. He was the representative of God's people. So their sins became his because he represented them. That's how, and as he represents them out of the slavery of Egypt into the promised land, that's how they're going to be redeemed. You ever ask yourself, who is Jesus? And what happened on that cross? Jesus represented us to the Father. How? Why? He took the blame. Moses took the blame for God's people. Who's Moses pointing to? Jesus. He's our true representative. He's our true mediator. God should have been angry at us, but yet the Father instead was angry at Jesus the Son. Israel might have asked God multiple times in this event, why'd you make this life harder? Why'd you make the journey more difficult? And as God made a way through the Red Sea, he's answering them so that you may know who I am to you in a way that you wouldn't have ever known before unless I split the sea and miraculously save you out of this difficult path that I've created. Now you know, no. Do not ask God the same question. Why did you make the journey so hard? We were fine. All was well in Eden. Everything was good. You just had to make it harder. Why? He answers us so that you may know who I am to you in a way that you would never have known before. By splitting a sea? No. By dying for you. It's one thing to know God when he says, I love you. It's another thing to know God's love when he dies for you. Now, now you know, no. You know what Moses did? Not only did he take the blame for Israel's grumbling, it was his hands that was raised up all night waiting for the sea to split. You know how painful that must have been? You know what Jesus did? Not only did he take the blame for our sins, it was his hands that was nailed to the cross, making a way for us to land safely at the other side of the shore. There is a sense in which the Christian who's truly accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. There is a sense in which the born-again Christian who's accepted what God has offered them on the cross to know God's love and look back to who they were before Christ and say to themselves, man, you thought you knew God. You really thought you knew. But oh my, you have no idea. You have no idea how much he loves you, how committed he is to you. What if some kinds of knowing can't just be revealed with mere words? What if some kind of knowings God must show you? What if the goal of our existence isn't to get to the finish line quicker? What if the goal of our existence is to know God deeper? A knowing that can only be known through the cross. 
There's one more thing. It's not in my notes because I was rushed in this particular sermon that I wanted to share as well. The ones who know God here wasn't just his people, but God said earlier, I will swallow up Egypt's army so that they may know me. They knew God too, but they knew his justice. They knew his wrath. The whole world will know God. He's offering us grace, love, and mercy. Know him through Christ. There is no other way. You don't want to know him without Christ. He loves you. He's committed to you. I pray you embrace what he's offering through this passage. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we confess our grumblings that we so often come to you the way Israel does and all of your people have been doing for forever. We complain and we mumble, we grumble, and we blame you and we go back to our own sin. We don't want to obey your word. And Father, I pray that you make us see the sin no longer, blind our eyes to it, no longer make us hide from it. And as you reveal it, lead us, Father, to the cross, the only hope of salvation, the only way in which our sins will be answered for. You have made a way. And because of that, we know you so much more, infinitely more. You have said, I love you through your blood. You have said, I'm committed to you through your death. And you have said, I will never leave you in your resurrection. Help us, Father, truly know you. And when we walk through this long, hard road and land finally at the other shore, we can say with a loud, resounding voice, I am here, not because of my righteousness, not because of how good I am. I am here because of Christ in me. And in his name alone we pray. Amen.